Welcome to the Living Out Seminar Stream. Welcome back. You've been with us. Welcome for the first time. It's your, it's your first time with us this week. We're really thrilled you're here. We're spending some sessions together over this week wrestling with big questions about faith and sexuality, hearing some real-life stories, talking about some big topics, and getting a chance to discuss together as well. My name's Andrew. I've been hosting the stream, and today I'm really thrilled to be joined by my friend Ashley, who's going to be hosting today specifically. We both work through a charity called Living Out, a charity that exists to help people, churches, and whole of society talk about faith and sexuality. And we do that as people who believe the Bible and also have walked through this in our own lives. And you're kind of going to hear some of our stories and some of my story particularly today. And we want to be really upfront at the start of each of these sessions about kind of the perspective from which we're coming. We know there are different perspectives people might take on this topic of sexuality. And so we think it's helpful actually to say up front kind of where we're coming from. So all the speakers on the seminar stream this week believe, as is kind of the view of New Day as a whole, what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, what we can call the historic Christian sexual ethic, that the Bible teaches that sex and marriage are reserved for lifelong unions of one man and one woman. And that means that God says that any sex and any sexual relationship that falls outside of that context falls short of his plan and purpose. It's what the Bible would deem sin. And so that includes gay relationships, gay sex, but also any other forms that fall outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage uh, context. And we also know there are other views that Christians would hold, and we're really open to discussing those in our Q&A time or in conversations afterwards. But it's just helpful for you to know that we're coming from that perspective. It's our perspective, the perspective that New Day as a whole in New Frontiers, the family of churches out of which New Day comes, holds to. We believe it's what the Bible teaches, what for 2,000 years Christians have believed. And our aim really this week is to help you to understand some of that, and more than just understand it, understand that it's good. It's good news for all of us. Beautiful. Thank you. So, as Andrew said, my name is Ashley. I'll tell you more about myself tomorrow, so I will stay something of a mystery today. Um, I'm just going to tell you what we will be doing this morning. So, Andrew is going to share a bit of his story with us in a minute. As he's just said, I get to grill him, which will be fun for me. He's then going to talk to us about how following Jesus helps us to stay true to ourselves and what that has looked like in his own life. We're going to have a bit of discussion after that, just some time to absorb what you've heard, maybe work some things through. And then, as Andrew said, we'll have a Q&A at the end to submit your questions for that. Uh, the internet's a bit patchy, but we're going to try it anyway. We'll use Slido. So head to slido.com and you want to put in the code LO Thursday. It is Thursday. You're all a bit sleep deprived. So if you forget the code, it is there and there and we'll be at the bottom of the slides as well. I think that is everything for today. So I will take my not quite comfortable seat, and ask Andrew some questions. He has been grilling people all week, so this is kind of payback. Um, but I get to grill you tomorrow, so if you're really oh, mean to me now, yeah. I can I be more mean to through. tomorrow. Not that I would do that, obviously. Obviously. No, you're a, you're a, you're a gem. Andrew's actually technically my boss, so I have to be nice to him. Um, <laughs> Andrew, can you please tell us, when did you first realise you were attracted to other guys? So it was my teenage years, I guess, when I realised that. But in a sense, I didn't at first realize I um, grew up in a Christian home, which was a huge blessing, loved Jesus from a young age, had quite a sheltered Christian upbringing, I guess, and the world was just really different. I was like entering into my teenage years, what, just under 20 years ago. It's not a long time ago, but the world really was different, and I think I genuinely didn't know that some people are same-sex attracted or gay. And so as I entered into my teenage years, I began to realize or it became to be a reality that romantic and sexual desires that were emerging were consistently for other guys rather than for girls. 
but I think I genuinely didn't know what was going on, what that meant. And I didn't know what to think about it, and so I just kept really quiet about it. So for a good few years, it was a very real reality in my life, something I was conscious of, didn't quite know how to compute it and what to do. And I guess by my mid-teen years, I began to realize, okay, this is a reality for some people's life. This is a reality for me as well. Yeah. So you were already a Christian when you became aware of your sexuality. How, how did you navigate that kind of faith-sexuality tension? Mm. At first, I didn't. In the sense of, it was just like, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what to do. I started to when, after the first time I first told someone. So there was a guy who was um, a youth leader in my church, and he was helping me, just kind of discipling me, mentoring me, a few, a few things. And one day he just uh, kind of said to me, oh, is there anything else you want to kind of talk about together? And to his surprise, and to be honest, to my surprise, I suddenly blurted out and said, well, actually, I'm experiencing attraction towards other guys. And I think he didn't know what to do, I didn't know what to do, but that became for me the kind of starting point of thinking, I've got to work out, I love Jesus, I want to faithfully follow him, I'm also experiencing attraction to the same sex, what do I kind of do about that? So I was kind of my mid-teens by that point, I guess. And to be honest, at first we didn't know what to do, but what was great about him was even though he said, I don't really know, I don't understand, I don't have answers, he listened lots, he sought to understand what it was I was experiencing, how I was feeling, and we began to kind of explore it together. We kind of read some books and talked about them and such like. But really, as time went on the next few years, my journey took two clear steps that God took me on. And the first step was to wrestle with the question, what does God actually say? What does God say in his word about sex and marriage and relationships, about how I should live, how I should steward my sexuality? I ended up in a situation where I had to think about that and had to have an answer because I was studying A-level religious studies and a whole half of our course was an in-depth study of Christianity and homosexuality. And I was in a class, there was me, there were, um, I think, 11 girls, no other guys, uh, only one of them was a Christian. I don't know really what she thought about the topic. And the teacher was this lovely, lovely man who was going to be a Catholic priest but he was gay and didn't feel he could live by the church's teaching, and so he became um, a teacher. And so I found myself as kind of the closeted gay guy, evangelical Christian, having to wrestle with what does God say and defend it to this class of people, which was quite intense, but also quite helpful. I couldn't avoid having to answer the question. I couldn't avoid other viewpoints and having to wrestle with different perspectives, and I needed to be able to really kind of defend my position. So I read stuff, I wrestled with it, I prayed, I was wrestling with the scriptures and came to the conclusion that what I'd always been taught is what the Bible teaches, that sex and marriage are reserved for lifelong unions of a man and a woman. And it was really helpful, actually, to have that season of really wrestling of what does the Bible say and reaching, okay, yeah, this is why I believe what I believe. At that point, I was, well, I am quite a pragmatist, and I was certainly a pragmatist then, and I guess I looked at it quite naively, and I thought, well, that's fine. I'll just stay single. This is no big deal. Let's get on with life. Got on with life. Got to my early 20s and found, actually, this whole just staying single thing isn't quite as simple and straightforward as I thought it would be. I began to find various aspects of life quite difficult, and realized there was a second question I needed to wrestle with which wasn't asking, again, what does God say? I knew that, and nothing was shifting on that. There was no convincing arguments were, uh, or no arguments were convincing to cause me to change my view there. But it was a new question of, well, how do I live this out? And actually, almost like, can I live this out? If, for me, this looks like this means being single, being celibate for the rest of my life, well, is that even possible? 
I was just really wrestling with that. But it was a season where God was just so good to me and where I realized, well, the breakthrough moment was realizing that while I was really hung up on actually a desire for a boyfriend, a desire for a sexual relationship, actually what was really lying behind all of that was a desire to love and to be loved. And what God helped me begin to realize and experience in my early 20s was I could be single and be celibate and still love and be loved. He put me in a context with deep, meaningful friendships and with experience of church as family, where even though I was single, I was realizing I'm really deeply loved and I'm getting to experience family life. And actually, all the things I was beginning to find difficult as I came into adulthood as a single person, realizing actually singleness as an adult doesn't have to mean loneliness, isolation, not having family. Actually, I can have a relationally rich life. And so that became actually a really important second question to wrestle with to bring my faith and my sexuality together because it was all very well knowing what God said but then it's like the gosh how does this actually work on the ground yeah and that was such a breakthrough and so for me my my life since has been trying to how do I hold these two things together here's what God says and here's the practicality through friendship through church's family lots of stuff we talked about yesterday if you were here and we talked about singleness holding those two together is how I'm now seeking to follow Jesus yeah fantastic thank you so we're here today to talk about identity. I know identity has been a, a big theme in your story. Can you give us a bit more of a starter on that? Yeah, yeah I sometimes say my three decades of life so far have been three identity crises or characterized by three identity crises. The kind of question of who am I has been huge for me in lots of different ways. As a child, it was a big way for me uh, in terms of who am I as a, a boy or a girl. I really didn't find fitted in with the boys, and by the end of my childhood, I came to the conclusion that I must be a girl trapped in a boy's body. It kind of felt to me, in my childlike mind, that the only explanation for how I was experiencing life to be, I remember it so vividly, because I remember the fear that I would get pregnant, clearly not knowing how these things work, and that then this great secret would be found out. And I literally remember concluding, well, I have to never get married, never leave home, and just kind of keep this hidden so no one ever finds out. And actually that feeling of being a girl trapped in a boy's body went away as I kind of came through um, into teenage years, into adulthood. But a sense of discomfort around my identity as a man remained. And so gender was one of those areas. And then it was sexuality. When I reached my teen years, I shared, began to realize I'm pretty much exclusively same-sex attracted. I was hearing, I guess, two different identity things in the world around me. Some things in the world around me seem to say that was the worst thing possible. And not only the worst thing possible, that it somehow marked me out as as weird and maybe as even kind of lesser than people. And so there was kind of identity questions of, does this mean that I'm kind of weird or or lesser or or something? But then other people and other messages around me seem to say it was the most important thing about me. That actually my sexuality is my identity. It's core to who I am. I need to embrace it, be proud of it, express it, act on it. And so there's these really competing messages and this kind of identity wrestling of, okay, this is my experience. What does that mean about who I am? Does it mean I'm one of the worst types of people possible? Or actually, is this really fundamental to who I am? So sexuality is being a place I've had to wrestle with it. And in my 20s, I, in kind of my mid-20s, had a fairly uh, major mental health kind of meltdown. wasn't the first one I'd had. Ended up in a season of depression and being a really low place. Some kind friends really encouraged me to not run away from the pain, but to explore it and deal with it. And spent quite a while seeing a Christian counsellor. And one of the things we talked about and discovered was kind of underlying the mess I found myself in, was that I had a really unhealthy identity and sense of self deep down. 
Now, on the surface, I would have told you, I'm a child of God, I'm loved, all these things. Awkwardly, I'd already written a book saying that stuff, which I think is all still true because it was expounding the Bible. But I knew it all up here, but I wasn't really experiencing it down here. So I would have told you, I'm a child of God, I'm loved, all this stuff. But I actually realized the controlling narrative of my heart was that I was a freak and a weirdo. I genuinely believed I was a freak and a weirdo. I genuinely believed everyone thought that. I remember the first time a friend said to me, Andrew, I've never thought that of you. It was like this light bulb moment of, oh, wait, what, really? Because I thought, obviously, everyone thinks that. There's so many ways I'm different and I don't fit in. And so I really had to work through and unpick this really unhealthy sense of self that had been there without me even knowing it and actually work through how do I come through that. And all three of these, as I'll talk about in just a moment, really the thing that has helped me through them, helped me wrestle with them, is saying, well, what is God saying in his word? God says that who I am is who he says I am. And that actually tells me who I am as a man, tells me how to live with an identity that allows me to healthily respond to my sexuality, tells me I'm not a freak and a weirdo. And even if everyone thought I was, that wouldn't matter because God says he loves me and I'm his son. It's God telling me who I am, which is the answer to any identity crises we might have. Love it. Good stuff. Last question for now. Uh, Not so very many years ago, you were a teenager on this very campsite. What do you wish you had heard then about faith and sexuality? Yeah, I sat literally in these cow sheds. It could have been this cow shed. Could I remember have been this one. Very similar, yeah. What do I wish I'd heard? I wish I'd heard that I'm not the only one with a broken sexuality. And I think we're getting much better. I think when I was a teenager, there was a lot of talk where we were kind of realizing we needed to talk about homosexuality. We tended to refer to it then. And the talk was often, or the talking about it often implied kind of these people are out there and this is an issue we need to understand and they're not in here and there's this big problem out there and we don't so much have problems about sexuality. And I wish actually that some of the messages would be actually that all of us, our sexuality is a good gift from God but also impacted by the reality of sin in the world. We call the fall that God's good creation has been marred. And that, yeah, same-sex attraction is part of that experience for me, but all of us have got that in different kind of ways. And so actually I wasn't weird or unique in having a broken sexuality. That's something for everyone. I think I wish that we talked more, as again, I think we're getting better at now, that marriage isn't the pinnacle of life and it's not the goal of Christian discipleship. Um, yeah, it was years ago now, so I can say it, there was a seminar on this site, and it was so encouraging to me about sexuality, what God says, and I was kind of really feeling fueled up with, yes, it's what God says, and I can faithfully follow him. And I really felt at that point that God was saying, you know, the way you ought to faithfully follow me is to be celibate and single. And right at the very end of the seminar, they had a guy come up to his testimony. And it was the first time I'd ever heard someone who was a follower of Jesus, loved Jesus, and was same-sex attracted, shared so openly, he had been in gay relationships, all sorts. He left those. And I was like, this is amazing. God, this, this happens. I'm not the only one this can work. And then he said, I'm now married with like three kids or something. And I felt crushed. And don't misunderstand me because some people, some of our good friends who are same-sex attracted, get married, have kids, and that's wonderful. But suddenly the message to me was marriage is still the goal, even if actually you're same-sex attracted. Even though I had this strong sense, I don't think that's what God is saying to me. I feel no sense of any chance of attraction to a woman and marriage. And it was quite crushing, to be honest. And I don't want to dismiss those stories that are true and, and wonderful to people who want to pursue that and feeling that happens. But it was just reaffirming marriage is the goal. And I was like, man, that's not going to happen for me. My life's going to be miserable or I'm failing as a Christian or something. And I think what's great, and again, listen to the recording from yesterday if you weren't here, we had a great time talking about singleness, the importance of us valuing it, how we really can kind of thrive and flourish in them. So I wish, yeah, we'd talked a bit more about that and I'm thrilled that we are. Yeah.
Great. Thank you, Andrew. Do you want to get set up? Um, so we are just going to pray because praying is a good thing to do while Andrew sorts his, sorts his notes out. And we're going to pray for me that I can speak as well, apparently. So let's take a second. God, thank you that you are so, so good. Thank you that you have good news for our identities, that you have something to say about this area of our lives as well, and that it's good news for us. I pray that you would help us to hear from you this morning, that as Andrew speaks, we'd be hearing your voice in our hearts. Would you uh, challenge us and encourage us in whatever ways we need, Holy Spirit? Thank you that you're here with us. Amen. Thanks, Ashley. You've already heard my life as being in some ways characterized by identity crises and big questions about identity. And you know, many people I know look at my life now or they hear my story now, and often the assumption people have is that Jesus is bad news for my identity. They hear something about my story, they understand something of my experience, they think Jesus must be bad news for my identity. For some people, that's because they assume that Jesus and that Christians, followers of Jesus, must leave me kind of crippled with shame. That they must leave me feeling so ashamed about who I am, my experience of sexuality, give me this kind of poor self-image of myself. For many people, there's a sense of, oh, I feel sorry for you because actually inevitably, Jesus can make you feel bad about yourself and leave you in shame. Or for others, sometimes people are concerned for me because actually they think Jesus is asking me to deny who I really am. That my sexuality is my true self, it's core to who I am, I need to embrace it, express it, act on it in order to find my best life. And they feel this sense of Jesus asking you to deny that, to, to lie about who you are maybe, to not embrace your true self, to not be authentic. The assumption so often I come across and I experience it in conversations with people is Jesus is bad for my identity in one or both of these ways. But actually, for me, my experience is the complete opposite. The experience for me is that Jesus is the best thing possible for my identity. It's because of Jesus I'm not crippled in shame. And it's because of Jesus I can truly be true to myself. I can truly be authentic. And that's because of what Jesus tells me about identity about who I am and how I find who I am. You see, Jesus tells me I am not what other people think of me. I'm not what I feel inside. I'm not my desires or uh, my, uh, my feelings. That's not what defines me. What defines me is God. What God says about me, I am who God says I am, as the Bible teaches, as Jesus says. That's how identity is meant to work, because we're creatures of the creator. The creator tells us who we are, receive identity, we let what he says shape our sense of self. You see that in Jesus. That's exactly what happens in the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus' sense of self isn't shaped by what other people think of him, which is good because they're very mixed opinions. It's not shaped by what he feels inside, it's shaped by what God the Father says of him. You actually get a kind of a picture of this at the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus where he's dunked down into the water, he comes back up, and this voice comes from heaven. It's the voice of God the Father, and it says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God the Father is declaring who Jesus is, and Jesus receives his identity from him. He like absorbs it, he lets it shape his sense of self. He knows who he is because he knows who God says he is. Jesus is who God the Father says he is. I am who God says I am. You are who God says you are. That's how we're meant to find our sense of self and understand who we truly are. And if we do that, 
and we become a follower of Jesus, we trusting him, we receive the gift of salvation he offers us, we receive the best identity possible. We get a brand new identity. We're adopted as God's children. We become adopted as sons and daughters of God, brought right into the heart of who God is, the God who is love. And actually those words said over Jesus, you are my beloved son, now get said over us if we're a follower of Jesus. Because we're in Jesus and what's true of him becomes true of us. The very best identity we can receive is the identity we receive trusting in Jesus, receiving our identity from God. And that's why Jesus is good news for my identity, even as a guy who's gay or same-sex attracted. And actually, that's why and how he helps me find freedom from shame and helps me really be true to myself. See, he helps me find freedom from shame. And that's so important because, sadly, the reality is that shame is a huge problem among LGBT people broadly. And by shame, I'm talking about kind of a sense of uh, embarrassment or discomfort or maybe humiliation about an aspect of ourselves and our life experience. And it's widely recognized that that is heartbreakingly a common reality among LGBT people. It's probably one of the reasons for elevated rates of mental health conditions among this cohort of people, although it's probably not the only explanation that's there. And shame is linked to identity and to how we find identity. Here are some words from one famous gay man, a singer and actor, Will Young. He says, shame is certainly something that LGBT people experience in bucket loads. From day dot, the message from the powers that be is that we are wrong, less than human freaks. We internalize this pain and turn it onto ourselves, leading to excruciating shame and internalized homophobia against ourselves. As Will Young's own testimony to his experience and what he's seen in other people and Notice there how we see how shame and identity are linked. This is about identity. It's about who we are. He says we're wrong, less than humans freaks. It's a sense of self people get, and it's a sense of self people get from the opinion of others. It's from the powers that be, he says. The powers that be say this, and then it gets absorbed. He says we internalize it. We internalize his pain, turn it onto ourselves. What other people think, what other people say, what other people imply gets kind of sucked in, it shapes our sense of self. Shame is about identity, and so often shame is rooted in letting other people tell us who we are. And most of us who are maybe same-sex attracted or gay ourselves will be able to kind of relate to that. We'll have had experiences or at least seen things and heard about things that kind of send us that message of we're somehow less of them, somehow not fitting in, somehow not worthy of the same respect that other people are. Any of us in the room who are experienced with sexualities like that will be familiar with that. We've had those experiences. I do. One experience that was quite formative for me at school, I was regularly the butt of a joke where a guy pretended to have a crush on me. And it sent to me this message that to have a crush on another guy is a bad thing. It makes you a weird thing. It's worthy of joking about. It was sending me a message about myself and inviting me to shape my sense of self in that way. They're really common experiences, sadly. Still today, they are common experiences. And even more sadly, any of us who are followers of Jesus have to put our hands up and recognize that often we as Christians and the Christian church have been one of the contributing factors there. We've been often historically some other people sending those messages that have shaped people with unhealthy sense of self, that have created a sense of shaming people. 
when I was a teenager, as I mentioned, sexuality wasn't really talked about an awful lot in church circles. When it was, the assumption was the gay people are out there, not in here. And so I was left kind of thinking, should I not be here? Do I not really fit in? And the implication I was assuming as a teenager was they're out there because they're not allowed in here while they're like that. And so I was left wrestling with, well, is there something that marks me out then as lesser than, as someone who doesn't fit in, someone who Jesus wouldn't be accepting? For so many people, actually, sadly, we are being part of the problem that's caused LGBT shame. And people often assume, as I said, that because I'm a Christian, obviously I'm crippled in shame about my experience of sexuality. And they assume that because, sadly, sometimes that is people's experience. But it doesn't have to be our experience. And it shouldn't be our experience if we're a follower of Jesus. Because actually, Jesus is the answer to shame. Whether our shame is around sexuality or anything, actually, Jesus is the ultimate answer to our shame. Firstly, we as Christians should never be the ones to cause LGBT people to be crippled in shame. Because we, of all people, know actually all people are worthy of deserving of honor and respect. We're made in the image of God, every single one of us. That means we're deserving of honor and respect. And we want to follow the way of Jesus. In Jesus' day, there were people who would have been crippled by shame. Different groups than today, maybe, but people who would have lived crippled by a sense of shame and embarrassment, conscious of different elements of themselves. But you see in the Gospels that Jesus never contributes to that. He doesn't reject those people. He doesn't speak against them. He welcomes them. And actually, they're drawn to him. The people in Jesus' society who would have felt most shame actually seem to be drawn to Jesus and are welcomed by him, loved by him. He loves them, honors them, values them. We, as followers of Jesus, want to follow that example today. Sadly, we've not always done that. I think we're getting better. I think Christians and the church is getting better. But we always need to make sure that we're the ones helping people find freedom from shame, not bringing people into shame. And we can help people find freedom from shame because Jesus is the one who truly offers freedom from shame. Because he invites us to change how we find identity. You might not be able to change what people think or say or do, although we should be working to see that change happen. But you might not be able to do that, but you can change how you get your sense of self and what you allow to shape your sense of self. If you were playing a game and you kept getting injured, you might not be able to change how the people were playing the game, but you could choose not to play the game so you don't get injured. You can choose not to be crippled by shame because you choose not to let your sense of self be shaped by other people but instead to let it be shaped by God. Who does God say I am? And if everyone else is saying different, I'm going to listen to what God says. I'm going to let him shape my sense of self. Jesus gives us a true answer because he invites us to step out of the game where we can experience shame and to find actually a better identity in him. And that's so good and so powerful because the, the answer offered to us by our culture is basically just to ignore what other people think. People who aren't Christians are kind of told, we're well, ashamed of a big issue among LGBT people. So just kind of ignore what people think. Just push those things away. Just keep telling yourself you're enough. Keep telling yourself you're okay. But the problem is we find it really hard to convince ourselves. We kind of think, well, why should I believe myself over that person or this message? We're not wired to be able to convince ourselves about who we are. And so as much as we try to convince ourselves those things aren't true, we always struggle to do it. But when God tells us who we are, There's power in that. We can be sure that if the one who created you tells you who you are, you can be sure of who you are. God's voice is the one who can truly silence every other voice. God's voice is the one who can truly free us from shame. True freedom from shame comes through Jesus. When we trust in him, receiving a new identity, 
as children of God, loved, accepted, delighted over. We silence every other voice by listening to the one voice that really matters. Jesus doesn't leave me with an unhealthy, destructive, shame-filled identity. He leaves me now. I'm a child of God who is loved and delighted over, regardless of what other people say or what other people think. Maybe for you today, shame is a real reality. Maybe that's around your experience of sexuality. Maybe it's something totally different. Or maybe for you today, actually, your sense of self has been controlled by what other people think of you. There's an invitation. Jesus is saying, those voices aren't the voices to listen to. Listen to my voice. What does God say about who you are? But then also, Jesus helps me to be true to myself. Be true to yourself is one of the kind of great slogans of our days. And, you know, it's kind of good wisdom in some ways. We want to know who we really are. We want to live out who we really are. Because living out your best identity is the route to your best life. Of course, the big question becomes, how do we find who we actually are? But that whole slogan of be true to yourself, it's often applied to sexuality. People like me are told that my sexuality is core to who I am. It's part of my core identity. It needs to be embraced, needs to be expressed and lived out so I can experience my best life. It's the kind of slogan and motif you find behind pride celebrations, pride's being taken place over the last few months, and that kind of idea of be true to yourself, be your authentic self, or of being one of the common themes coming through pride celebrations, it's about identity. It's saying that our sexuality is our identity, it's who we are, therefore needs to be embraced, expressed, and lived out. And this is just a different way of doing identity. Shame often comes from letting other people tell you who you are. And actually, this kind of identity is about you deciding who you are. You look inside, you find what's there, feelings and desires, and you shape your sense of self around that. And that's why people look at me and my life and think that Jesus is asking me to deny who I am. If actually Christian teaching is that sex and marriage are reserved for lifelong unions of one man and one woman, and because of that, out of faithfulness to Jesus, I'm choosing not to act on my sexual and romantic desires for other guys, people think I'm denying who I really am. I'm not being authentic. I'm not being true to myself because that is core to my identity. That is core to who I am, and I'm not able to act on that. To so many people, the message of Jesus sounds like bad news to a guy like me. But I really think Jesus has got better news for me. He's got a good story on identity. He's got a better way for me to be true to myself. You see, that whole message of our culture of you are what you feel inside, your feelings, your desires, embrace it, express it, it's really problematic. The reality is what we feel inside changes and fluctuates all the time. It's not a stable basis for identity. We look inside and we think, well, who are we? And the reality is, we look inside and there's lots there. Lots of different desires and feelings. And sometimes those will contradict with each other. They can't be brought together. They can't both be embraced. So which one do I embrace to find the real me? Which one do I embrace to find my real life? Often we look inside, there's a whole load of mess and it's really hard to work out who we are. And that creates a lot of pressure. We're being told, only you can know who you are. Only you can find your best identity And we look inside and we're like, man, this is a mess. How do I find who I am? And we're crippled by this pressure of, I'm going to miss out if I don't work this out, but I don't know if I can work this out. And then what about the problem we can all relate to, right? That we look inside ourselves and some of the things definitely aren't good. We all know that we experience desires and thoughts that everyone's going to agree aren't good. We can all think of sexual desires we might experience where no one's going to say, yeah, that's who you are. You do you. You be true to yourself. None of us really actually even believe this. It doesn't actually really work. Be true to your authentic internal self sounds great. But then you think about it, you realize actually it's quite problematic. And even the idea that I am my sexuality and my sexuality defines me, it doesn't sound great to me. 
I'm so much more than my sexuality. I don't want to be reduced to my sexualities. If that single part of my human experience is the most important thing about me, it's the defining feature of me. I don't want to be defined and reduced to my sexuality. And I also don't really want to be defined or controlled by my desires. You see, the problem with this is if you say that who you really are is the desires you feel inside and you need to embrace them and express them to find your best life, you're basically being controlled by your desires. They're in charge. You've got to follow their will and whim to find your best life. You're not in control. Your desires are in control of you. I don't want to be in control. I want to be controlled by my desires just so I don't want to be reduced to my sexuality. But wonderfully, again, Jesus has got good news. Jesus offers us a better way. We aren't defined by our desires. We don't have to be reduced to our desires. We don't have to be controlled by them. We are who God says we are. God decides who we are. God says, because I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm his child. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm delighted over. So how do I find my best life? How do I be true to myself? I live as a child of God. I live as God calls and invites his children to live. And for my sexuality, what that means is I can acknowledge the reality of it. I'm not crippled by shame. I can acknowledge the reality that I experience same-sex attraction. I don't have to hide it or be ashamed of it or try and kind of deny that that's the reality. I can acknowledge it and be honest about it. But I also don't have to be controlled by it. I can acknowledge it, and then I've got the freedom to choose how I respond to it. I don't have to be controlled by my sexuality or by my desires. I get to listen to the God who knows me, who made me, who loves me, and say, well, how does he say it's best for me to live? How does he say it's best for me to steward these desires and respond to this reality I find in my life? What honors him and what is best for me? And because God says that sex and marriage are reserved for these one man, one woman, lifelong unions, what God says is best for me. So if I don't feel that's something for me, then being single and being celibate is the best thing for me. I get to choose to seek to live out God's parameters and plan for sexuality. I'm not controlled or defined by my sexuality. I'm defined by God, so I get to choose to submit to his ways. And that is, to me, a much better, much more life-giving, much more sensible approach to my sexuality and my identity. Does Jesus ask me to deny who I really am? No, Jesus tells me who I really am. And he calls me to live out. He calls me to be true to myself, the self which is a child of God. My identity isn't my sexuality. It's a true part of my life experience. My identity is determined by God as a child of God. My best life is found by living out that identity. And so when I choose not to act on the desires I experience for other guys, I'm not denying who I really am. I'm actually being true to who I really am. I'm being true to the fact that I am a child of God. Jesus has good news for me and my identity and sexuality. Jesus has good news for you and your identity and your sexuality. If you're a child, if you're a follower of Jesus, he says you are his child and your best life will be found by living as God calls his children to live. Let's pause and have a buzz of conversation. Find one or two people nearby you and discuss this question. Do you think Jesus had good news for your identity? It might be related to sexuality, might not be. Do you think Jesus has good news for your identity? A few moments and then we'll come and do some Q&A. I feel like a school teacher when I say things like that. School teachers are great, that didn't need to be so. Anyway, before I dig myself further into this hole, um, 
a couple of resources to recommend to you before we answer some questions. The first is Andrew's book, Finding Your Best Identity. I think it's on sale in the bookshop. Great, he's gone to check. It is there. Um, I really found this book very helpful. Um, if you found his talk helpful today, you're really going to love this book. So go buy a copy of that. Give it a read. Uh, do also check out the Living Out website. So pretty much any question that you have about sexuality, we will have answered in some form. We've got podcasts, we've got articles, there's tons of stuff on there. So go have a look at that as well, because we're not going to be able to get through all of your questions in the like 10 minutes we have right now. Um, the other thing to say is these talks this week are being recorded. If you haven't spotted those already, they're up on Spotify at least, and probably many other places as well. So do have a listen to those. We've got Tuesday, today is Thursday, it was Tuesday, um, talking about what the Bible says about sexuality and how that's good news. And then yesterday, the team talked about singleness as well. So if you have questions about those that we don't answer today, those are good seminars to listen back to. Right. Now my phone is locked. Here we go. What would you say to gay Christian couples who are married? Well, yeah. And this... Especially when we get lots, and it's a question I love because it's showing two things. One of it's showing actually we're expecting that Jesus is seeking and saving all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. We should expect that actually Jesus loves people in gay relationships and that they're going to come to faith in Jesus. And the second thing I love about this question is we're immediately thinking, wow, are there some big implications here? And because we love people, we're really kind of conscious and concerned of that. So I think it's such a great thing to talk about and to have those two things in mind as we talk about it. What happens when any of us come to faith in Jesus? Well, actually, all of life gets turned upside down. I'm now actually choosing to submit everything to Jesus, and every area of my life gets impacted by the fact that Jesus is Lord, and I'm submitting to him, including relationships and sexuality. So all of us should be thinking as we come to Jesus and all through our lives, how do I submit every area of my life to Jesus? And so I do think that for someone who's in a gay relationship, when they come to faith, that does mean also, okay, how do I respond to Jesus now in this? I do think that the Bible says that that relationship does fall outside of the parameters of God's plan to that. But in particular, what are the problematic elements there? A sexual element will be problematic because God says sex is for one man, one woman marriages. And I think kind of an exclusive element is a problem. Marriage isn't just friendship with sex. It's a different kind of relationship because it is exclusive and covenanted. And so I think those two elements of a relationship for a Christian would need to come to an end. And that's what we call repentance. What all of us do. We turn away from things as we turn to Jesus. Doesn't necessarily mean that actually their friendship is going to end. People will find different ways actually of how they think they can be faithful to Jesus then. So some people, the stories we would know if it actually... To be faithful to Jesus, I do need to have quite a clear break from this relationship. Others would feel actually we can still have a friendship. They might still even share a house if they've owned a house together, still uh, parent the children they might have together. And actually, because they think actually we can honor Jesus and this can be a friendship and there not be a sexual element, not be an exclusive element. It's not a problematic relationship in that sense. But the key thing is repentance has to take place of those. Um, those elements that do fall outside of God's plans. And I want to recognize that that's a huge thing, that's a costly thing, a painful thing. And I want to kind of make sure that we as church families, they are supporting and loving people through that, but also to remind us that all of us are called to costly discipleship. For all of us, there'll be things we give up in following Jesus. And if that's not the case for us, that needs really to shine the light on us and think, what should I be giving up for Jesus? What's he calling me to be faithful to him? Because it shouldn't seem like such a weird thing to happen because it's what we're all doing. Great. Next one. 
As a bisexual person, I'm very unsure about my future, whether I'll remain, remain single or get married. I'm putting you on the spot, but could you give me a word? I'm going to take this one. Uh, so I am also bisexual, which is why I'm taking this one. I am single. I'm not married. Um, I think it's an interesting question, actually, because I don't think anyone really knows whether they're going to get married or not until they get married. You know, I think, I think that's, a, that's not something that we can always predict, and it's not something, usually, that God kind of will say clearly one way or another to us. I don't actually know anybody who has had God say to them, you are going to get married one day, or, or the other, um, in that kind of really, really clear kind of way. Um, so I think my advice to you would be, assuming that you are currently single, because most of the people in the room are not old enough to get married, um, Becoming comfortable with being single, kind of going, okay, if, if I am single for the rest of my life, then if that is the path that is laid out in front of me, how do I enjoy that? What does it look like to live that kind of life well and faithfully as I follow Jesus? And then if I am going to be someone who gets married one day, what kind of person do I want to be? How would I be a good spouse to my future spouse should they exist? And I think those questions are going to end up in the same kind of place. You, you, you want to follow Jesus. You want to look more like Jesus. You want to be inviting the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and transform you. Um, yeah, I'll stop. I'll talk in circles. No, so I totally agree. It's very helpful. It's kind of good wisdom for anyone, I think. But also, I was thinking the identity thing helps us here. So we use language like um, bisexual, gay, same-sex attracted, because they're helpful just words to articulate in experience. Because they're not identity, that's really helpful to make that distinction. So actually, if we're saying we're bisexual, we probably mean is that sometimes we experience attraction to people of the same sex, sometimes we experience attraction to people of the opposite sex. Like I've been talking about here, it's not an identity, it's just a description of experience. And if I don't think we need to, or it's helpful to think of ourselves as a different class of person, therefore the situation is different for us about marriage, anyone who feels they can enter into marriage with someone of the opposite sex can do that if that's a wise thing for them to do. And so removing identity from this, and just actually thinking more the level of description of desires... I think remove some of the complexities we sometimes get ourselves into in our thinking around especially maybe experiences of bisexuality. Did that make sense? I think so. Okay. Made sense to me at least. Um, we've got a question about the difference between being... Oh, it's moved. Between being same-sex attracted and being gay. So since we're talking about language... Yeah. Yeah, great, yeah. So you might notice that one of the things I often do is kind of talk about being gay or same-sex attracted. I'm meaning the same thing. I'm just deliberately using different words because different people like different words. And sometimes it becomes a really controversial thing in, in various circles. Some people really hate people who are Christians using the word gay. Some people actually really hate people using the word same-sex attracted. And so it's just a really unfortunate situation. We have no language that isn't problematic. And I'm kind of sympathetic to both sides. I really understand why for various reasons and because of various experiences people have had, people are uncomfortable with different kind of language. But I also think that sometimes it becomes such a debate about language and you get into this huge argument about language and forget what we're actually talking about is real people and real life experiences. And so I kind of don't want to get caught up in the big language debate because I think it tends to distract us from the important thing. And so my personal way of doing that is to just kind of use both. But when I use either, all I'm saying is my pattern of attraction is for me, for other guys, people of the same sex. Cool. Uh, well, on friendship, do you like your own friends? Have you ever liked your own friends? 
I do like my friends. I presume the meaning is, have I ever kind of had romantic feelings for them? Have I had a crush on friends? Um, my friends are reassured. I do like them. But that's really good. And that's like, I think for lots of same-sex attracted gay people, that's a big thing. And it's a bit of a, a kind of a trope, a classic thing of as a gay person, you always at some point end up falling in love with your best friend. And so my answer would be, yes, sometimes I've developed feelings for friends and, and people I'm close to. And I just need to navigate that wisely. So I'm going to do different things at that point. One is I'm going to think, actually, how do I just handle this wisely so it's handled well in my own heart and my own mind and in the reality of the relationship. So my closest friends, if I begin to feel attracted to someone else, I will tell them. They know the people in my my life right now who actually are just people I need to be careful about how much time I'm spending alone with them. I need to be careful about what I'm doing in my thoughts of them. They know who those people are. They have the freedom to ask those questions. And so I'm just trying to be wise about that reality. And so I'm not scared of developing close relationships with other guys, but I'm being wise by being honest with myself and honest with other people. And also, if I start to develop feelings for someone, I'm going to kind of ask myself, why in the sense of what am I really looking for? Because chances are it's not just about that person. Chances are it's... I'm feeling lonely or I'm feeling a bit disconnected and what I'm looking for is love, intimacy, connection. And I'm going to be thinking where the healthy places God has given me to do that, including the healthy ways in this friendship I can do that. Because the more I know that I'm loved and I'm experiencing healthy intimacy and friendship, the less likely I am to develop unhelpful attraction or kind of sexual fantasy and such like about people. Bro, last one for the sake of time. Is it wrong to sometimes feel angry with God because of what he says about pursuing same-sex relationships? Well, well. I want to say it's really common and understandable, and we really wrestle with it. And I think when you look at the Psalms, the Psalms are this uh, book of poems um, in, in the Bible. You find every emotion expressed, including at God, and you find people angry with God. And I think what that book is telling us is that's okay. God gets that we're emotional beings because he's made us to be emotional beings. And he wants us to be, uh, have the freedom to feel our emotions and our expression emotions. And the safest place and way to express our emotions actually is to God. So I think I want to say we never want to deny that or suppress that or hold that back. And sometimes actually coming to God and being honest is really important. But I also want to say that as a follower of Jesus, even if actually if I find what God says in his word really difficult and it might make me feel angry, I still want to be on the journey to accepting it and seeing the goodness of it. So I'm going to simultaneously want to feel the freedom to feel what I'm feeling and to express that to God in a healthy way, but not to kind of leave myself there and just say, furthermore, God, I'm just really angry at you because of this. I'm going to ask, why does this make me angry? What actually about this is it that I don't like? And here's the thing I don't like. Is that actually true? And I'm going to use it as motivation, I guess, to explore and to wrestle and to think and to study it in the Bible and to wrestle with God. Because the journey I want to go on is in that safe place of relationship with God, journeying from being angry with it to realizing actually God is good and I can love him and recognize the goodness of this. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Some wise wisdom in there. Can we thank Andrew? Give him a round of applause. (laughs) Served us so well today. Fantastic. So before we go, we just want to take a minute to pray, just to give you guys some space to respond to God. We've heard a lot of different things this morning, um, and just, yeah, it's important to give some space to let that all settle. I'm going to ask you all to stand, because I'm feeling sleepy. I don't know about you. Uh, It's just going to help us, I think, engage.
brilliant. Have a stretch. Good stuff. So there may be a number of things that we've touched on this morning that have hit home for you. It might be everything Andrew talked about to do with shame, whether that's LGBT shame, any other kind of shame. Maybe stuff to do with being a child of God and how you feel about that phrase. Could be a whole bunch of things. I'm not going to try and list them all. Whatever it is that God has poked particularly for you, whatever has stuck out for you this morning, just take a minute and talk to God about it. Just offer it to him. Ask him what else he wants to say.